Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. You're listening to CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. It's a forum for you to get answers to the tough questions and better understand the issues that matter to you. We're bringing this episode to you uncut and unfiltered, straight from the national stage. And it all starts right here, right now, on CNN. Hey there, welcome. I'm Anderson Cooper in New York. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, and this is the CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. Tonight's broadcast is being seen around the globe on CNN International, CNN Espanol, and being streamed on CNN.com. Also, Anderson, it's our 10th consecutive weekly town hall. And let me just show everyone this chart. When we did our first town hall nine weeks ago on March 5th, there were 12 deaths and 227 cases. Tonight, there are now 75,543 deaths in the U.S., and close to 1.3 million cases. At least 2,112 deaths just today alone. 2,112 people died today alone. I just want to repeat, that was nine weeks ago, 12 deaths, 227 cases. Now 75,543 deaths, more than 2,100 today alone, close to 1.3 million cases. Tonight, Dr. Deborah Birch from the White House Coronavirus Task Force will be joining us to answer your questions about the virus and also about reopening the economy. You're also going to hear from Lori Garrett. She wrote the book, The Coming Plague. Former Vice President Al Gore is also here at the bottom of your screen. You're going to see our social media scroll. Tweet us your questions with the hashtag CNN Town Hall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. Also, a lot of you have sent in video questions, and we're going to get to many of those as we can as well. We also have reports from across the country and around the world on how those at home and abroad are fighting the virus. And we want to start with where this country is in its fight against the virus as more beaches, shops and other public spaces begin to reopen across the country. There are now more than 1.2 million confirmed cases of the coronavirus in the U.S. More than 75,000 people have died and researchers warn the death toll could rise dramatically. How many deaths And how much suffering are you willing to accept to get back to what you want to be some form of normality? One prominent model shows the projected death toll at 134,000 people, which is almost double what it predicted just last week. That's because social distancing measures have been relaxed in many places across the country. By Sunday, more than 44 states will be partially reopened. Health experts say there are four criteria that must be met in order for states to safely reopen, which are two weeks of declining numbers, contact tracing on all new cases, testing for anyone who has symptoms, and the ability to treat everyone safely in the healthcare system. To my knowledge, there are no states that meet all four of those criteria. There are, of course, real and important fears over the economy and keeping businesses closed for too long. Economists predict the unemployment rate will hit 16% by tomorrow. But the virus is still extremely contagious. 
There are roughly 20,000 new cases reported every day. The faster we reopen, the lower the economic cost, but the higher the human cost because the more lives lost. That, my friends, is the decision we are really making. There are more than 100 potential vaccines in development around the world. The timeline is still unclear. Right now, everything is aspirational. One journalist who's been warning about a pandemic like this for a long time says her best case scenario is the coronavirus could be with us for the next 36 months, if not longer. That's the best case scenario. And I don't see that happening. Well, that was Lori Garrett, who's reported extensively on pandemics, will be joining us later in the broadcast. Sanjay, this, as you said, is the 10th time that we've uh, been doing these coronavirus town halls. And I want to ask you, after 10 of these, what do you think Mm. we've learned and what do we still not know? Well, we know that everybody wishes we were looking at the backside of this pandemic curve, that's for sure. But we also know that we're not there yet. And we know a lot of people are losing patience, Anderson. Uh, And understandably, and that's what's, I think, driving more than 40 states to reopen prematurely, despite the fact that none, not a single one of these states, met the criteria that the coronavirus task force themselves laid out. We know also, Anderson, there are uncomfortable conversations happening that no matter how else you frame it, when public health is pitted against the economy, that means ultimately you are putting a price tag on a human life. Those conversations are happening. But we also know there are hints of hope. There are states like New York where we can say that things are no longer progressively getting worse. Maybe we can even say that they are in fact getting better. There's a vaccine in phase two clinical trials now. It took months to get there instead of years. We know that there are countries around the world that have been able to reduce infections to nearly zero. So we know there's a path forward and there's proof that it can be done, that that some sense of normalcy can be restored. But even, I think, Anderson, I I was really struck, even if we're reluctant to say it out loud, and I think most people still know and believe in their hearts and their minds that we will one day be able to start getting out more and more and do it safely, but for now we still have to stay home as much as possible. I want to go to Athena Jones here in New York at the epicenter of the pandemic for the latest on the spread of the virus and the partial reopening that we've been seeing. Athena, 44 states are either partially reopened or expected to be by this Sunday. Where are cases declining? Where are they rising? Well, cases are, are, are rising, Anderson, about 24 states and Puerto Rico. If you see that, this helpful map you can put up, the, the states in red or pink are places where the cases, number of cases are rising. The darker the color, the worse the situation. So you see Minnesota and Puerto Rico uh, cases are up 50% uh, between last week and the previous week. Uh, and so that's a bad situation there. The states where, where the cases are falling, it's only 16 states. Those are the green states. The darker green means the better situation. So cases are dropping significantly in Montana. That's where we saw some schools opening today. They're also falling in places like New York uh, and Colorado. So a bit a mixed bag, but it's very interesting to look at the, this, these states and know that 44 of them are planning on reopening on some level, uh, even if the cases are still rising. Anderson. Yeah. Um, Athena, you know, it was announced uh, today that a personal valet to President Trump tested positive for the virus. I'm wondering what more you're, you're, you're learning about that how, and how they're planning on protecting the president. 
Right. This was a, a member of the U.S. Navy who was a personal valet of the president, a very close personal aide who tested positive. Uh, this man had been showing symptoms. Uh, we know that the president was upset when he learned of this because, of course, this raises concerns about whether he was exposed. The president was subsequently tested. Uh, he turned out negative. So did Vice President Pence. Unfortunately, this doesn't necessarily mean they're in the, in the, in the clear because of the incubation period of this virus. So what happens now? Well, we know uh, that the president himself told reporters that he's now going to be tested daily. And we also know that White House staffers and members of the Secret Service, anyone who might come into close contact uh, with the president or vice president, uh, they were being tested as well today. Uh, so this certainly, though, uh, drives this, this point home or brings it close to home, I should say, for the president. And it's important to mention that this is a White House that hasn't enforced strict social distancing guidelines. Not a lot of folks wear masks uh, during the day while they're at the White House. And, and it really uh, points out that, you know, facts are stubborn things. It's not about whether you believe in them. You know, not believing in the seriousness or dangerousness of this virus is like not believing that water is wet or the earth revolves around the sun. Uh, not believing in it uh, doesn't give you immunity uh, from being affected by it. Um, there's going to be a jobs report for the month of, of April tomorrow. Uh, what, what's the expectation on the numbers? Well, it's not going to be good. I mean, this this pandemic has really ravaged the U.S. labor market. One in five uh, U.S. workers uh, filing for first-time unemployment claims just since mid-March. So these are Depression-era levels. And today we learned uh, that last week 3.2 million people filed for first-time jobless claims. Uh, so so that it's just bad numbers, and we're going to expect more bad news uh, tomorrow. It's one of the reasons you're seeing so many states trying to get their economy started again. Yeah. Anderson. Dina Jones, appreciate it. Thanks. Uh, senior medical correspondent Elizabeth Cohen joins us for the latest on the race to develop vaccines and therapeutics. So, Elizabeth, the FDA has cleared the Moderna vaccine for phase two of its trial. What does the, that mean? What, what's the next step? That means, Anderson, that things are moving along. And there are some other trials that are about where Moderna is. Let's go over what these phases mean. The first phase is just usually a few dozen study <coughs> subjects, and they're looking for safety. They're trying to make sure that this vaccine won't hurt anybody. The phase two is a few hundred study subjects. They look at safety. What dosage should we use? Does it elicit an immune response? Phase three is the one that people really pay attention to as far as efficacy goes. Only with a few thousand study subjects, do you know if this really works or not? The thinking is that these trials, the phase three, will happen this summer. Many, again, many of these uh, vaccine developers are at about at the same place. Could we have a vaccine by January, which is what everyone's hoping for? Maybe it's possible, but many experts think it is going to be much later in the year than that. And this is a sobering thing to say, but we do have to maintain in our minds, Anderson, that this vaccine might not work. None of them might work. It is possible. Fingers are crossed, but it might not work. And we're certainly going to have to try many to get a few that do work. Eli, I'm definitely crossing my fingers. I mean, everybody wants one of these to work. And there's some 108 or so vaccines out there. I think the next question will be, if one of these does succeed, how quickly can, it, you know, can, they, can they manufacture it and bring it up to scale? Sanjay, you know that, you know, before the pandemic, things were done sequentially. You would do your study and just make enough for your study. And then you would make the massive amounts. You wouldn't make massive amounts before because you don't know if it works, mm. but it's going to go differently this time. Let's take a look at these numbers. There are eight vaccines that are in clinical trials, eight vaccine candidates, I should say. So eight vaccines candidates that are being tried out in human beings, some in China, some in the U.S. and one in the U.K. There are 100 that are in the lab that hope to be in clinical 
clinical trials. What's going to happen is that it's going to be selected that a few of these will mass produce their vaccine at the same time as they're doing studies. This is good and bad news. The good news is that hopefully one of those will work and we'll have this massive amount, you know, as soon as the studies are done. It does mean that we could spend money and really quite a bit of money making vaccines that's like, oh, you know what, it didn't work. It wasn't effective or it hurt people. And so taxpayer money will go towards making huge amounts of vaccines that aren't going to be used. But what public health officials are thinking is better off spending that money and having the right one ready right away. Yeah. The, the FDA issued an emergency use authorization for remdesivir last week. Do we know how it's being distributed? You know, it's interesting. When it was issued last week, the company that makes it said, you know, we have enough for 200,000 patients max, and that's in the whole world. So just this week, uh, hospitals in the U.S. were being told by the U.S. government, because they're controlling this, you have this many doses, you have that many doses. And the doctors we've talked to are very unhappy. They say that they're not getting enough, and they are having to look at their patients and say, who gets this drug and who doesn't? Now, mind you, this is the only drug that has shown to work against coronavirus. It doesn't necessarily save lives, but it does shave a few days off of hospitalization, which is important. And the doctors we've been talking to say they are having to make these terrible decisions about who gets the drug and who doesn't. Now, another part of this is they would like to be able to look at the study that was done on remdesivir to say, oh, it worked better in this type of patient than that. So I, I, I know who I should give it to, but that study hasn't been published yet. And they're asking, where is that study? And, and Elizabeth, quickly, what about hydroxychloroquine? Because obviously that was the medication that was getting all the attention just, you know, just a few weeks ago. Right. That's the medication that Trump was, that President Trump was very excited about. Yet another study. This one is the biggest one showing that it doesn't work. A study of about 1,400 people by Columbia University published in the New England Journal of Medicine. So it was reviewed by fellow scientists and it just found that it didn't do anything. And so they said there's no reason to be giving this to hospitalized patients. Might possibly work early on, might possibly prevent it, but not working for people who are already very sick. Elizabeth Cohn, thanks very much. Now to Ivan Watson in Hong Kong. Today, China declared that all counties in the country were at, quote, low risk levels of an outbreak. But an official said they still face a high level of uncertainty. Ivan, what are the numbers coming out of China? And, you know, obviously the question is, can, can the numbers be believed? Well, the numbers compared to the U.S. are pretty good. I mean, China says that it has uh, close to 84,000 confirmed cases of coronavirus and a bit more than 4,600 deaths. No new deaths from the disease in 22 days now. And we're seeing different parts of China, Chinese society starting to open up again. For example, the city of Wuhan, where the coronavirus was first discovered back in December and became the first real outbreak of what evolved into this global pandemic, high school seniors started going back to school there this week. There are still some hot spots, some border cities along the Chinese border with Russia, where China says there have been a lot of imported cases. They've had to impose partial lockdowns in recent weeks. Whether or not we can trust the numbers, Anderson, China does not tolerate dissent. There is, there is no independent investigative journalism there, independent voices that tried to sound the alarm at the beginning of the epidemic. Some of them were persecuted, so we don't have any kind of independent narrative aside from the Chinese official figures.
And, and Ivan, I mean, President Trump and, and Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, they continue to blame China, say that the virus originated from a lab in, in Wuhan, or they believe that. That's um, Where do things stand tonight on that? I'm going to shamelessly steal from a journalist at The Economist who has called this dynamic the scold war, where Beijing and Washington are accusing each other of failings. The Chinese government bristles at these types of accusations, claiming that this is all a smear campaign that the Trump administration is using to try to cover up for its own failures in dealing with the pandemic at home. The Chinese foreign ministry has also gone further, accusing the Republican Party of using China bashing as a political strategy to help it with the upcoming November of political November presidential election. Uh, going one step further, Chinese state media, an anchor recently accused the U.S. of being the world's biggest exporter of the novel coronavirus. Now, keep in mind that just a few weeks ago, a senior Chinese official was spreading conspiracy theories without any evidence to back it up that it was, in fact, the U.S. military that introduced the coronavirus to the city of Wuhan. Uh, Ivan Watson, uh, appreciate it. Uh, check in with you again. Sanjay, I want to take a quick break. When we return, Dr. Deborah Burks from the White House Coronavirus Task Force joins us to answer questions. Later, we'll talk to former Vice President Al Gore. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. We continue the CNN Global Town Hall, coronavirus facts and fears with answers to your questions about the pandemic. At the bottom of your screen, you'll see your social media scroll shows questions that people are uh, asking. Joining Sanjay and me to help answer questions is Dr. Deborah Burks, the White House Coronavirus Response Coordinator. Dr. Burks, thanks so much for, for being with us. CNN is reporting. CNN is reporting that the Trump administration will not implement the CDC's 17-page draft recommendation for reopening America, according to a senior CDC official. The same official told CNN, quote, a team of people at the CDC spent innumerable hours in response to an ask from Debbie Burks, end quote. Why are those guidelines not being used? And even the guidelines that you put out for the coronavirus task force for states, according to testimony, most of the states that are reopening have not actually met the criteria that you set out. So thank you, there's two questions there. One, we're in deep partnership with CDC, both for the White House guidelines that were put out on how to open up America again, but also the details behind the DOT guidelines. And we're working with the CDC on a whole series of products from how to improve community mitigation, what to do about contact tracing, how to improve surveillance, and certainly these de more detailed guidelines about childcare and camps. And those are still being worked on. They, no one has stopped those guidelines. We're still in editing. I just got um, my edits back from the CDC late yesterday. I'm working on them as soon as I get off of this um, this discussion. So we are in constant work with the CDC and really value their partnership. And as you know, they put up guidelines quite often. They just did a meatpackers guidelines. And so I really want to appreciate how proactive they have been in working with the White House and really ensuring that the best science is put forward, both in our White House guidelines, but also in the guidelines that they post on the it, CDC is website. That, is that what guides the edit science? Because it seems like from some of the comments coming out about these guidelines that it's also, you know, uh, 
political beliefs, religious beliefs? I mean, is it scientific? Is it scientists who are making the edits? Well, I like to believe that I'm a scientist and I've been working with the CDC on the edits. It was more about simplification to really make sure that both the American people as well as public health officials understand the guidelines. And then really working on a whole area on surveillance for asymptomatic individuals. And that was a very new element that we felt very strongly had to be included because of the ever increasing evidence of asymptomatic spread. Dr. Burks, uh, as you know, uh, one of the valets at the White House tested positive for the uh, coronavirus. And I'm curious, uh, you know, I know that there's, I'm sure, discussions about protection of the president. You know, you think of that as being a Secret Service thing, but, but have, you, have you offered some guidance on how to best protect the president, the vice president, in terms of not contracting the coronavirus? Because I understand, like, masks aren't being worn. I know that they're being tested more often, but the point would be not to get infected. How, how are you, what are you advising them to do? Well, I think for anyone who works in the White House, when you are sometimes with the vice president or president, I think all of us are very nervous every day. None of us want to be the one to ever bring coronavirus into the White House. Most of us don't do anything but go to work and come home. Um, if we go out at all, even to take a walk, I could assure you we do wear masks in public and we do very exquisitely social distance. But every day, you know, when you're running around, you're always asking yourself, did I forget to wash my hands? Did I use hand sanitizers? Did I touch someone's phone? Did I touch someone's chair? And I, I know that the American people are thinking this themselves every day. And it's difficult to constantly remind yourself to be careful where your hands are, to not touch your face, to make sure you're washing your hands. Because our hands touch a lot of things. And I think that kind of constant awareness that we all have to have in order to just protect ourselves right. from getting infected, but critically to protect others from getting infected. But wouldn't you tell people to wear masks then around the president? I mean, just based on what you said, even if you're really diligent, you might still inadvertently get, get infected and pass that infection along. Certainly there are people who wear masks on the White House complex. I'm very scrupulous and I know all of the meetings we have are very much focused on social distancing and ensuring that we maintain that separation. Sometimes in meetings in the Oval it's more difficult, but we really concentrate on this and I think that we all are very concerned about protecting others as well as ensuring that we don't become positive ourselves. Um, Dr. Burks, uh, more than half the states in the country have either started to reopen their economies or are planning to do so in the near future. Most of them, as I said before, failed to meet the criteria that you and the Trump administration have recommended. You put out those three stages. Th that's, they're not following that. I mean, is there, are, are those things just now irrelevant? Well, I don't believe they're irrelevant. I work with governors every day to really make sure that they understand each of the phases, but critically to make sure that also the American people are going to the website and looking at what they can do to protect themselves. In all, right. in all the first two stages, and very seriously, I just want to mention this again, it's really about ensuring we protect the most vulnerable among us. And so we have still asked for all of the all of the individuals with comorbidities or other, other conditions that would make them more susceptible to a more serious disease to continue to shelter in place. And for those that interact with those individuals with comorbidities to be absolutely scrupulous in their hand washing and right. in there making sure that they're but, wearing but masks any, in public and making sure that we're protecting those individuals. But are any of the states that are reopening, have they met the, your criteria? 
Well, we've told them that they had they could meet the criteria county by county or at the whole state level. And I can see counties across the United States and in every state that meet the criteria. And so when you see what ha what Governor DeSantos did, he had counties that met, met the criteria and those are starting to open. He kept Broward, Palm Beach and Dade closed right. and not reopening for that right. very reason. And so that's we're constantly advising the governors. Right, but but, but then, not, that's not happening course, in all states. I mean, states. Right. But Georgia is is, you know, the governor made a statewide order for how to reopen and they don't qualify to your standards. Well, I think you saw strongly our response, both my response and the president's response to Georgia. And I think mm -hmm. to the people of Atlanta, we still ask you to follow your case numbers and really ensure that your cases are starting to go down before you start to relax any of your diligence or social distancing. This is really for all Atlantans to listen to. I, ha I have to say, Ambassador Brooks, sorry, I, just, I live in Georgia, and as you may have also heard, uh, the University of Maryland released a study saying 62,000 people came to the state because the restaurants were open and barber shops and things like that. I mean, that, that's a problem, right? I mean, how do you do this state by state or even county by county if people can still move around when you're dealing with a contagious virus? I mean, that, that, puts, that puts people at risk, maybe as they're coming out the backside of the curve. Well, I think it, it also puts themselves at risk, those who chose to come into an area where we know that there is still circulating virus. And that's why I've asked every state to not only, and I'm sure they're very diligent about their individuals and the governors are concerned about every member of their state, but I've also asked them to really make the data available to the public. And so whether you're in the state or outside the state, you can really see what's going on. And I've been driving people to the Florida site. I really want to work with every state governor to make this data public facing so that everybody can see where the cases are, where the hospitalizations are, where the testing is available, and where the state fits and where that county fits in the most granular ways so that people and the citizens of every community can see their own individual data and be able to interpret the federal guidelines and ensure that protecting themselves. President Trump said earlier this week that the U.S. has the best testing in the world, that he doesn't think we need, quote, that much testing. Yesterday, he said, and I quote, in a way, by doing all this testing, we make ourselves look bad. Does it concern you that the president seems to think that more testing somehow makes, I don't know who ourselves is, the administration, whoever he's referring to, look bad? Do you think more testing makes the administration look bad? I think I've been very encouraged about two parts of the testing. One, the dramatic increase in the number of tests we're doing per week. Um, we hope this week to get closer, over 8 million. We're going up. We're about 2.5% of all Americans having been tested. That is increasing by a half a percent every week so that we can get close to other countries and their three percent but I think what I've been excited about with the testing is the use that the public health leaders in each of the states are doing because we really made an issue on, on the guidelines yes it's important to test those with symptoms but really to get out there and proactively monitor in prisons in nursing homes in long-term care facilities in inner cities among those we know are in multi-generational households and really being proactive about testing 
I really want to emphasize over and over again that this asymptomatic spread is key. We have to be able to find it. And if you look across the United States right now, most of the outbreaks that we're seeing that are occurring in meatpacking plants or prisons or, or in specific communities or long-term care facilities are not only being diagnosed, found, 100% of that facility tested, but then contained. And this is exactly what we were asking states to move to, to really ensure that they're testing and containing. So when I hear people talk about test, 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 and contract trace, contract trace, states are doing that. You can really see the evidence base because we can see in a county the number of cases going up rapidly and then immediately stopping. And county after county, we probably have 20 or 30 counties where across but those counties they've been able to contain outbreaks. You would agree, though, that there's not enough people to do really extensive contact tracing. I talked to, I've talked to governors just in the last couple of days who said, you know, aspirationally they would like to have you know, 1,800 people, I think my, uh, Governor DeWine said in, in Ohio, but th they're not there yet. Is there anything that can be done to actually help states get more people to do contact tracing? I know the CDC says they're I sending some people, really but it, we're talking about large numbers of people yes. here. I think there's two pieces of that. CDC is moving into into state after state to work with them. Some of the states right. have done amazing things that's with a small using number the of National people from Guard. The CDC. No, they're, what they're there to really help the state train the contact tracers. And so states are being quite innovative in finding contact tracers, and we really encourage states to do that and work with the CDC on that training. And I think that's really going to be important. And I think at the same time, we have to be innovative because contact tracers in inner cities, if they're part of the health system, they could be community health workers and really be out there in the community providing advice on comorbidities as well as doing contact tracing. And so I think we have to work with each of the states and each of the novel issues to make sure we're providing the best guidance, but also to really try to do some dual use with contact tracers to ensure that they're available to the community to even consult on other issues that we know put individuals at greater risk to COVID-19. Um, Dr. Burks, we want to try and get to a couple viewer questions. Annie in California sent, sent in this video. Why is the front of a face mask considered contaminated? Why is it okay to tie my shoes or touch my clothes, but not okay to touch the front of my mask? What makes the mask, whether homemade or medical grade, more contaminated than anything else on my body? Dr. Burks? What a great question. Right. That is a great question um, and very insightful because when you draw in a breath, you can draw in droplets. And so when you breathe out, you also breathe out droplets. And so we always assume that the front of mask are contaminated because you're bringing things in through that cloth and the outside would be contaminated with whatever you were breathing in. And so we always ask people to be careful, just like we ask them when they take off gloves, to take off mm -hmm. gloves in a very specific way so they don't contaminate their hands. Uh, Dr. Burks, uh, we appreciate not only you being with us tonight, but all your efforts on thank behalf you. of, of everybody. Um, that's very thank much appreciated. Thank you, and thank, thank you for you. both of your work and keeping the public informed. Well, Thanks, we wish Dr. you the Burks. best and uh, Godspeed. There's a lot more ahead on this CNN Global Town Hall. We'll talk with journalist Lori Garrett, author of The Coming Plague, plus former Vice President Al Gore will join us to talk about leadership in times of crisis. After the break, more from CNN Town Halls and Debates. Stay tuned.
More now on the hunt for a vaccine. As Elizabeth Cohen mentioned earlier, there is a key development on that front tonight. The drug maker Moderna says it's received FDA approval to begin a phase two trial of its potential coronavirus vaccine. Now, the WHO says it's one of eight vaccines in clinical trials worldwide. One of those uh, who took part in the company's phase one trial in Seattle is Ian Hayden. He joins us now. Ian, I don't know a lot of people who at age 29 would knowingly risk their own health to receive an experimental vaccine. Why did you decide to do this and how do you feel? Yeah, well, actually, it turns out there were a lot of people who were willing to, to sign up for this study to do what I'm doing now. Um, the study recruited 45 healthy people in the Seattle area initially, um, and actually thousands of people signed up to be in that group. Mm. Um, my, my motivation for wanting to participate in this trial is pretty simple. You know, it's just this is one way I can I can help out and I'm fortunate to be in good health. So if stepping up and, and taking part in this clinical trial could speed up a vaccine, that seems like the right thing to do. I mean, I really admire that, uh, Ian, and, and thank you uh, for that, and thank you for being here. You, so you've received two doses, and, and you know that there's, there's different doses that are being given as part of this trial. And I think you know that you're in the highest dose group of this, of this vaccine. I'm, I'm wondering, so after the second dose, uh, did you have any troubles? What sort, of, what sort of challenges have you had? Yeah, I, I felt pretty good throughout this trial. I did feel a little crummy after the, the second dose there, but uh, that passed and I'm, I'm feeling well now. So by and large, you know, I, I feel just like I did before I started this whole experience. And Sanjay, can you just explain, I mean, Ian's been injected with a live virus. No, actually, no, this is an interesting uh, sort of viral problem. And Ian, Ian and I, I'll, I'll say we talked a little bit earlier about this trial. It's very interesting. I'll just say quickly, it's an mRNA. It's a messenger RNA vaccine. And that basically means it's a blueprint of a part of the virus. You put that blueprint in the body and the body in, in and of itself sort of acts like a vaccine factory. The, the body's making the vaccine in this case. So hmm. it's different and, and it's never been done before. It's been talked about and try, you know, they started this in during previous coronavirus uh, epidemics, but this has never been done before. And, and what is in, you've written about uh, something called challenge studies and essentially saying you would volunteer to actually receive to be purposely exposed to COVID-19, to the virus, in order to try to speed up the process of finding a vaccine that works. Yeah, there's a growing conversation around this idea of a challenge study. Um, at the moment, no one is planning to do anything like this, but in, in, other, uh, in the past for other conditions, researchers have done these challenge studies where they expose volunteers to a virus, for example, uh, when they want to know whether or not a vaccine really works. Um, challenge studies are obviously risky, right? You're exposing people to something that could harm them. Um, they have the advantage, though, of, of speeding up testing. Normally, when you're testing a vaccine, you have to wait a long time and just observe whether or not vaccinated people get less sick than the people who received a placebo. With a challenge study, you might be able to short-circuit that a little bit. Uh, like I said, no one is planning to do this just yet, but there is a, a growing conversation about whether or not in these extraordinary times, it mm -hmm. might be time to consider that. And Sanjay, something like that, there's obviously ethical questions about, about a challenge study. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's very interesting. What would normally happen in phase three is that you're finding a, a population, an area of the world where the virus is circulating. You give some people the vaccine, other people, you don't give the vaccine and you see, does it make a difference? What Ian is talking about is saying, you know what? 
how about you purposely expose me to this? Uh, I've been vaccinated. I don't know if the vaccine works, but you purposely expose mm -hmm. me to this. And it, yeah, it's, there are ethical questions, but it, as Ian said, it, uh, I mean, the reason that you might do it, and it has been done before, is to speed up this process uh, because of the incredible demand in this case for the vaccine. So, you know, it's, it's, uh, it, it's not happening yet. I mean, this hasn't been a decision that's been made, but it's something that people are starting to talk about. Hmm. And, and in, I heard uh, that when you were getting um, one of the treatments, uh, you, a pharmacist said something to you looking at the, what she was uh, going to be giving you. What, what, what did the pharmacist say? Yeah, that's right. Actually, just before I got the second shot, I asked if I could take a look at the syringe, see what, what it looked like. And she showed it to me and she said, you know, it, she's, she's found it actually beautiful. Hmm. The solution inside the syringe is this sort of translucent blue color. It really didn't look like what I expected. And she mentioned that, you know, one time when she was preparing one of these vaccinations, she just sort of looked at the syringe and, and stared at it. She said it brought a tear to her eye just looking at it because she was thinking, you know, the weight of the world is on on these vaccines right now, and no one knows if this is going to be the one. But you know, I think the people involved in the study clearly know that they're involved with something historical here. Mm. And it's now gone to phase two. I mean, that's you know, this is um, I mean, this is record speed. People may not realize because the first time they're really following this, but it takes years sometimes to get to this point and done it within months. I mean, Ian, I, I hear you, and I think a lot of people, other other people, will hear this and say, "How can I?" become a part of this trial maybe, I don't know. If, if people now want to volunteer for these later phases, how, how do they do it? Yeah, so the website clinicaltrial.gov is where you can find all the official information about these. And, you know, I'm taking part in a clinical trial. It's one of the early ones, but there will be many clinical trials for coronavirus vaccines and for other medicines. So if healthy people are interested in stepping up and participating, they should look into clinical trials that may be happening in their areas and see if they're able to sign up. And where do things go from here for you? Um, so I'm involved in a phase one study. So following this, if everything looks safe, um, we're going to move on to phase two. And it sounds like that's starting right now. Um, there's still phase three after that. So it'll be additional testing that that'll take months no matter what. Um, and so, yeah, that, that's the next steps for this. Wow. Well, it's extraordinary what you're doing. And I really I mean, I, I appreciate it as a human being. And uh, I just think it's really admirable and brave and Thank you very much for doing it, and to everybody else who's volunteering to, uh, to do these studies. Ian Hayden, thank you. Yeah, thanks. Well, a reminder, at the bottom of your screen, you'll see our social media scroll that shows the questions that people are asking. We're answering some of them there. You can also tweet us your questions with the hashtag CNNTownHall. You can also leave a comment on the CNN Facebook page. Back now with Sanjay. I also want to bring in a veteran of many of our town halls, Dr. Lena Wen, an emergency room physician and visiting professor at George Washington University. Uh, Dr. Wen, first of all, how's your newborn? She's doing fantastic, and I want to say congratulations to you, Anderson. Oh, Today's oh. town hall, I'm sure, is going to be great, but it will never beat last week's town hall. <laughs> so how's Wyatt doing? Yeah, he's great. He's doing really well. Uh, more, more than a week old. Very exciting. Uh, so, Dr. Wen, you recently, uh, when you recently wrote an op-ed in the Washington Post, which I urge everyone to read, you describe how to stay safe as states reopen. What do you think are some of the best practices? 
So states are reopening, but the virus hasn't changed. And so there are things you can do to reduce your own risk. So keep on these good public health practices like washing your hands often. Um, don't plan any gatherings. This is not the time to start planning dinner parties and play dates. Keep social distancing when you can. And if you have to go back to work, then ask your employer about guidance to stay, to stay safe. So for example, is telecommuting still an option? Are there staggered shifts that you can do? You can also reduce the risk for others as well. Wear a mask, don't use public transportation if you don't need to, reserve it for those who have to. And you can also keep a daily diary of your contacts in case you end up getting the virus and then you can help contact tracers. Hmm. And then finally, and most importantly, stay home if you are able because there are plenty of people who are not able to. Social distancing is a privilege. And so by staying home, you're protecting not only yourself and your loved ones, but everybody else around you too. I want to get to viewer questions. Dr. Wen, this is a question that Nancy sent in. It reads, is it safe for me to get my hair done? My stylist works in her home, so it's just her and I there. Both of us will wear a cotton mask. Any other tips you can give me for safety? She also sprays all surfaces with Lysol before each client. Would that be safe? It is better. You know, it's better that it's at her home uh, with one other person rather than in a salon where there are many people around. But frankly, it's not safe because there are other customers who are going to be there. And there, it's not possible to keep social distancing when you're cutting someone's hair. So I guess if you will, if you have to get your hair done, you could make things safer. Wearing the mask is one step, but it's really not safe. And I would encourage everyone to cut your hair at home during this time right now. Mm. Uh, Sanjay, this is a question that uh, Marlene sent in. It reads, uh, my daughter-in-law has COVID toes, but no other symptoms. What causes this? And is there a risk of amputation? Can you, can you explain what that is? Because I, I hadn't heard about it until about a week ago, I think. Yeah, I, you know, we're all starting to learn about this stuff together, and it's, it's relatively recent. It's similar to something known as chillblains, a, a new word for a lot of people. But that's sort of the lesions that sometimes people get on their toes in colder weather. Um, Here's the good news is, no, your, your, your loved one's not going to need an amputation. This appears to be something that's probably related to COVID. It could be in the inflammation in the blood vessels. It could be little clots that are going down to the toes and causing some decreased blood flow and these lesions uh, on the toes. Sometimes it's happening in people after they've recovered or you know, after they're no longer uh, testing positive for the virus. But, it, but it's mostly associated with milder disease. Uh, Dr. Wen John, who's a self-described avid swimmer, sent in this video question. Let's take a look. I like to swim and it's good exercise, which I need, but the pools are all closed. My question is, can I get coronavirus from swimming in a freshwater lake and how likely is that? Dr. Wen? John, you're not going to get coronavirus from swimming in a lake or a river or a pool. But if there are other people around you and they can breathe on you or cough on you and there are surfaces that you could be touching, then you could get coronavirus that way. And Dr. Wood, does it change anything? I mean, if someone is swimming in a pool with chlorinated water, I mean, it, it, either way, it's not the water that's the issue. It's, it's being around other people. Exactly. And I get really worried when I see these images of people congregating at beaches. And I could imagine that happening mm -hmm. in a pool if there's a public pool and lots of people are touching the same pool tables and benches and other surfaces, too. Sanjay Natasha in Hawaii sent in this video. Let's watch. Are there any benefits to wearing gloves while you're grocery shopping? And if so, how would somebody go about using them properly? I understand, you know, using gloves correctly and changing them constantly, but it doesn't really seem feasible right now. Do you have any other recommendations also besides, you know, washing your hands 
when you come home and wearing a mask when you're out at the store that can maybe help keep people safe and healthy. Sanjay? Yeah, well, uh, about the gloves, I mean, you know, just keep in mind again, uh, as Lena was just talking about, the way that you get this virus potentially is you touch something and then you touch, you know, your eyes, your nose, your mouth. So if you have gloves on or it's your hands, it's the same problem. You've you got to avoid touching your face. Gloves can be helpful to the extent that maybe they remind you not to touch your face. But, you know, if you look at the CDC's guidelines for, you know, they, they don't recommend that you need to wear gloves when you're going out in public. They recommend that you have to wash your hands and be mindful of all the surfaces you touch. So, no, I would, you know, you don't necessarily need to wear gloves. People can if they want to, but it's really the, the face touching that's the big key. Uh, and we'd love to have Sanjay's videos that he shoots for us. Uh, tonight's video of Sanjay is at a, a grocery store. Let's take a look. Even in the middle of a pandemic, people still have to grocery shop. And grocery stores are considered essential businesses. Now, the conventional wisdom is limit the number of trips to the grocery store. That can be hard. Maybe you can't buy everything at once or you don't have enough room in your house to store everything. So I want to show you today how to do this as safely as possible. The key is to plan ahead. I got my list. You want to get in and out of there as quickly as possible. That means moving efficiently through the store and thinking about every surface you might touch. You don't want to dilly-dally. Think of yourself sort of like a SWAT team member. Get in, get out, leave as little trace of yourself as possible. So let's go do this. Now, keep in mind when you go to the grocery store, it's about your own safety, but it's really about the safety of the frontline workers. I'm gonna get in and out pretty quickly, but the frontline workers, they're here all day, so they're more at risk. One of the things that's nice about this particular store is that Richard here is wiping down all the surfaces. Thank you. I uh, carry my own hand sanitizer with me just in case. I really wasn't quite sure what to expect. But I can tell you, it's pretty quiet here in the grocery store. They reduce capacity, and they keep special hours for people who are medically vulnerable. 7 to 8 in the morning, Monday through Thursday. My kids really wanted to come with me today. They wanted to get out of the house. But shopping nowadays is pretty much a solitary activity. And keep in mind, don't touch anything that you're not going to buy. Be very focused. Get some eggs. I have kids. So this is how they do it in the grocery store. Please wait here. That keeps you six feet away from people. By the way, don't forget to buy some flowers for Mother's Day. I just want to point out they have plexiglass now, again, to protect the frontline workers and obviously the touchless technology. First of all, you blew your secret that you're giving flowers for Mother's Day, but I, you know. She was expecting that. I, <laughs> and she's going to be very surprised to have seen me in a grocery store. I don't think I was very good at that, but, uh, you know, hopefully I made some good I like the easy points. listening music. I was kind of rocking out to <laughs> That's that. That's grocery music, apparently, and when you go to the <laughs> <Yeah>. edit bay. <laughs> um, so Sa Sanjay uh, had the flowers in the grocery cart. Our next question is actually about that. Dr. Wen. Uh, this is a question that Nicole sent in, which reads, with Mother's Day coming up, can the virus live on fresh flowers? If so, for how long? I mean, theoretically, the virus can live on any surface, but the chance of it living on produce, on flowers is fairly low. And so if you want an abundance of caution, you can always rinse the flowers or certainly if it comes in a vase, wipe down the vase that it mm -hmm. comes in because it lives on hard, porous surfaces much more.
And happy and, Mother's Day to everyone out there. Yeah, Dr. Wynn, this is a, uh, a question that Carrie in Pennsylvania sent in, which reads, if a family member has COVID or had COVID-19, was isolated to one room, is simply leaving the room vacant for a week sufficient to clear it if uh, of the virus? I know disinfecting is best, but it is impossible to find disinfecting products right now, particularly ones to sanitize carpets and upholstery, i.e. aerosol cans of Lysol. Help. Yeah, so you can leave the you can leave the room alone for a week, and the virus should be cleared at that point. If you want to clean it, good old soap and water should do the trick. You can also use diluted bleach, um, because you had mentioned you know upholstery, carpet, other things in the room. You might need to look at the manufacturer's instructions, but soap and water, dilute bleach should be just fine. And Sanjay Jeanette in Indiana sent in this video. Let's watch. Hello, and thank you for taking my question. I live in Indiana, very near the Tyson meat processing plant in Logansport. If a COVID-19 worker there processing meat, can that meat become tainted and pass COVID on to me? Same question, please, for the other meat processing plants. Thank you. Sanjay? Yeah, it's a, it's a question we get a lot. Um, th this is a respiratory virus. So really the way that you are going to become infected if you do is be someone's uh, uh, putting the virus out in the air around you and you get to expose that way or you touch a surface as we were talking about. You don't eat this virus and, and uh, get it that way. I mean, there's other viruses, other pathogens, foodborne illnesses, but this is not one of them. Uh, I want to thank uh, Dr. Wen, as always, uh, and a happy Mother's Day to you, Dr. Wen. And I want to thank everybody who submitted their questions. Our town hall continues. Author, uh, journalist Lori Garrett, who predicted the battle against a uh, pandemic like coronavirus, and she predicted, she predicts this coronavirus may take years to battle. Joining us is, uh, she's joining us ahead. Also, former Vice President Al Gore to discuss leadership in a time of crisis. And After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. And welcome again to our 10th consecutive weekly CNN Global Town Hall, Coronavirus Facts and Fears. The spread of the virus is still rising in many parts of the country, and yet at least 44 states will have partially reopened by this weekend. According to one health expert we've spoken to, none of those states meet the White House criteria to do so. This hour, former Vice President Al Gore on the response to the pandemic. But Sanjay and I want to start with someone who has spent decades of her award-winning journalistic career studying the path of pandemics, Lori Garrett, author of the uh, the book, The Coming Plague. Lori, thanks so much for, for being with us. If you could just kind of big picture your assessment, where we are with this virus right now. Well, the real problem at the moment is that we have very fragmented responses all over the world. Every country is doing its own thing. Uh, within countries, every state or province is doing its own thing. Every county is doing its own thing. We don't have a unified approach and we don't have a unified sense of what is our strategic goal. So some countries are simply racing to come up with a vaccine, hoping to buy themselves time and solve their own local problems. Mm. But the, vi the virus will continue to circulate in the world, regardless of whether or not there's a vaccine unless we're committed to a strategic goal of really getting rid of the virus from the planet with appropriate implementation of vaccine for everybody, 7.5 billion human beings. You know, Vice President um, Pence said, I think it was about two weeks ago on an interview with uh, on Fox, he said, and I quote, I think by Memorial Day weekend, we will largely have this coronavirus epidemic behind us. 
we, when you and I spoke the other day, you talked about your best case scenario for this virus, which is 36 months. And that just to uh, get to just having it be 36 months required a whole bunch of what you called miracles happening. When you hear the vice you president know, saying two weeks, I mean, does that make or Memorial Day weekend? Does that make any sense to you? You know, here's the problem. Anderson, he set a certain goal. His strategic goal, and apparently the White House strategic goal, is it's behind us enough that we open up some businesses and we start getting the economy rolling again. We all want to get the economy rolling again. I mean, I was in a meeting today with IMF officials describing where this economy is headed on a global scale, and it is beyond desperate. They use phrases such as, this is the worst we've seen in more than 100 years. So, of course, we want to get the economy rolling. But when he says it'll be behind us by Memorial Day, that's not the virus behind us. That's whatever sense of fear is uh, dominating at the moment. And it won't solve the problem. It'll just let you open up some business enterprises. Can you just explain your best case scenario, your 36-month best case scenario? What does that look like? In that scenario, one of the more than 100 vaccines that are in various stages of development around the world right now turns out to be a home run. It works, it's effective, it only requires one dose, no booster. You don't have to refrigerate it, so it's easy to move around the planet and to get to remote areas. Uh, and it has no side effects of any kind or, the, or of any serious kind. It can be administered without using syringes or needles, so we don't have all those associated problems. Uh, so it's a nasal spray or uh, oral or perhaps a patch delivery. Uh, and we commit to a level of production that allows for seven plus billion doses and at an affordable price range that it makes it possible to administer it to everybody on the planet, mm. regardless of their comparative wealth. And then that we deploy a gigantic army of vaccinators and educators at their side because you don't want to develop anti-vaccine responses, people who oppose it for misinformation reasons. And you deploy them all over the planet to the top of the Himalayas, to the depths of the, uh, you know, equatorial Amazon regions, and you vaccinate the entire world. In other words, Somehow in 36 months, you accomplish what we did in more than a decade dealing with smallpox. Lori, obviously there's a lot of ifs in there. And you know some of these vaccines that are being uh, talked about would require refrigeration, which is why I'm sure you brought that particular point up. I mean, is it binary with you? Either we do that and it all has to work perfectly or not? I mean, is, there, is the, other, is the, is the uh, alternative the worst case scenario? So... There are two possible second stage possibilities. One is it takes a lot longer. We go out years, decade perhaps, trying to slowly, incrementally vaccinate the planet, hoping the whole time that the virus isn't mutating into a form like flu does that requires us to develop yet another type of vaccine each year or each several years uh, out. And uh, we have to have a massive a program of moving wealth from rich countries to poor to finance ongoing efforts over a very long period of time. The worst case scenario is that this virus actually becomes endemic and it joins the ranks of HIV 
as a new lethal horrible disease that is permanently plaguing homo sapiens that didn't previously bother our species that's uh, obviously you know it's it's you know Laura, you and i've known each other a long time and and um uh, you've you've been very prophetic on a lot of these things obviously when you describe that it's scary i mean it, do, is there is there some is there some middle ground here at all do you think or something that we can be hopeful about other than a vaccine is, you know in in terms of what can normalize life somehow i do think that there may turn out to be some interesting things that we stumble upon along the way that we can't thoroughly anticipate right now I mean, Sanjay, one thing that's very striking to me is that every day as more and more clinical information comes out, this virus looks more and more like a cardiovascular disease. Hmm. You know, because its cause of death is pneumonia, we obviously think first of it as a respiratory, a pulmonary disease. But, gee, every single physician I talk to who's dealing with acute cases says 100% of them have hypertension, high blood pressure. They may have other things obesity, diabetes, and so on, but hypertension is a universal. Well, you know, hypertension is one of the cheapest and easiest interventions we have. Mm. We, can, we can train somebody with no medical background at all in how to do a blood pressure test and manage to isolate and understand who's at risk, if indeed that's a risk factor. If, you know, perhaps it's a marker for not being part of the medical system. You know, when we look at the link between hypertension and poverty, I would love to know what you think of this, Sanjay, because you see this all the time. But you look at the link between hypertension and poverty, and it's really about didn't get worked up, mm. didn't get the appropriate intervention. Well, how cheap is it to imagine that a city like Atlanta would do an all-out hypertension campaign? And would every single employer, along with perhaps taking temperatures daily of your employees, would also offer blood pressure tests for free. And if a person turns out to have high blood pressure, put them in for intervention and medication. Uh, that's just one example. There may be hundreds of things like that mm. that turn out to play a role and to help decrease the horror that's laid out before us. You know, what's interesting, Laurie, the, all the, the scenarios you talk about, all of them really show a belief that, that this will fundamentally change the way we Americans do things for a very long time. I mean, far more than 9-11 than you know, changed our lives, which it did. This, and I'm wondering, do you know what that change looks like? Like, what does going to work look like? What does going to, I don't know if going to a restaurant is even feasible, but what does that look like down the road? Well, Anderson, I think we're gonna get out four or five years from now. and and there will be not a single aspect of our lives that's been unchanged. We, it's almost impossible to really fully envision what that will look like. But certainly, everybody's going to think twice about getting on airplanes, and that's going to be true five years from now. Everybody's going to think twice about whether that you know, meeting is important to go to or can they just get a synopsis of it later. All sorts of interactions and behaviors that we've taken for granted will look different. And then you have to keep in mind that on top of everything else, we have not yet really felt the effect of the Great Depression that we're marching into. We, you know, people have lost jobs, but they still have some cash to cover the rent. They still have some ability to maneuver. And similarly, whole cities, such as where I am here in New York, 
still have cash reserves to address problems. But as this progresses, as we get further and further into the economic repercussions of this extraordinary pandemic, we're going to see that every single aspect of life is affected simply by the by virtue of the inability of governments to invest in change, the limitations in cash reserves for companies, and how they're going to approach their own innovations and developments going down the road. And when you look at it on a global scale, every single one of the major global institutions that the world has just kind of, you know, taken for granted since World War II, whether it's the World Bank or World Health Organization and the UN system, or it's major international banking institutions, trade institutions, commodity exchanges, it's all going to change. Where it will end up, I'm not that good of a Cassandra. Hmm. You've been, I mean, you wrote The Coming Plague, everyone should read this book, and you've been you know, warning about uh, pandemics like this for decades. You've also done a lot of research on these kinds of viruses. Is this one surprising you, Lori, in terms of the virus itself, but also all the, the ripple effects? Absolutely. I'm stunned by this virus, and it seems almost every day there's something new that we find out about the virus that makes, you know, all the assumptions sort of get shattered yet mm. again. Um, I think the thing that's really striking about it is how many different modes of transmission there are. So, uh, you know, I, I don't want to throw out a term that you and I would use routinely without explaining it, but... You know, you think of flu and you primarily worry about somebody coughing on you or about shaking hands with somebody who just mm -hmm. sneezed on their hand, you know? Uh, and you think of, say, hepatitis and you're worried about being exposed to dirty needles. And, you know, you go down the list and most infectious diseases have a fairly finite range of ways that they can spread from one person to another. But this darn virus keeps surprising us. Every time we turn around, there's another mode of transmission and there's another presentation. Who would have thought Kawasaki's disease would have been, uh, that we see in pediatric presentation, would have been part of a COVID, you know, uh, symptomology? Who would have thought that it was um, oral fecal transmission and that this whole notion of washing hands would have so many layers of significance to it? I think we're, we're I'm just... I'm just staggered and surprised. I'm surprised at how hard it is to define what the incubation time is for this virus. It seems that in some social settings, it's very short. And in others, it's quite long. That People can be asymptomatically infected, have no idea they're carrying virus, and transmit it to other people for two weeks, three weeks. Uh, and, and yet, in other settings, it may be only a couple of days. Hmm. On and on and on down the list, it's full of surprises. In, in all your research on pandemics, all your thinking about the possibility of what it might look like here in the United States, did you ever imagine that the federal government's response would be what it has been? That, you know, we just learned today the White House rejected the CDC's recommended detailed guidance on reopening the country, which they asked for. Dr. Burks sort of put a happy face on it and said, oh, well, you know, the guidelines are still being prepared and this is just part of the editing process. Uh, we know they wanted to stop the coronavirus task force, but then the president decided, well, no, because it seems really popular. And he's talked about the ratings of it. And it seems like the administration essentially doesn't want much testing. The president has said that it looks bad for his administration. It looks bad for, for us. 
uh, if there's a lot of testing and the numbers go up. There's been questions, you know, some have raised questions about the death toll, that it's not accurate, that it's that it's overblown. Did you ever I mean, what do you make of the federal government's response here? There's a lot to unpack there. Let me first say, if you have not taken the time to look at the CDC guidelines, which are available, you can see them on the Internet. They're not crazy. There is a 17 page document that I think every single school superintendent will be very appreciative of. Every single employer will find good uh, information there that will help you. Anybody trying to reopen a hair salon or a restaurant, there's very specific detail. If this happens, do this. If this happens, do that. Now you can proceed to phase two. Now you can proceed safely to phase three. It's an incredibly detailed roadmap that that is being held up uh, and that there's indications that the intent is to block it, although Dr. Burke said, no, no, we're just amending it, um, is is astounding. I mean, uh, the number one difference, and I'm sure, Sanjay, you feel this every day, the number one difference is that in every single outbreak I've ever been in that was of any substance at all, whether it was on our domestic soil or overseas, the CDC has been in charge. And we have had daily briefings. We have had, you know, moments where the director spoke to us from the the operations center. And we all saw those camera images throughout the uh, Ebola epidemic. That wasn't an epidemic here in America. There were a couple of cases in America, but it wasn't an American epidemic. It was a West African epidemic. And yet we saw Command Central in Atlanta routinely. And similarly, CDC operatives working overseas held routine briefings both for local government representatives, for the UN system, and for journalists in whatever location they were working in. Now, where is the CDC? Why has all the authority of the CDC been stripped? What is it that the White House thinks is so dangerous about having the CDC that incredibly deep bench of expertise mm-hmm. talking directly to the American people. And, and I don't what, understand. What, and what have you come up with? Because, I mean, I, I think you're making a strong case, and I think a lot of people uh, would agree with you that the CDC has been sidelined here. I mean, you know, Richard Besser was out there out front during H1N1. Tom Frieden was out front during Ebola. And now we're not seeing the CDC hardly at all. What, what sense does it make to sideline some of the best epidemiologists anywhere in the world? You know, I can only come up with a couple of possibilities. And of course, there's widespread speculation um, to answer exactly what the question you pose. Um, Two stand out for me. The first is they did goof on the test. They developed a very bad contaminated test and it let down the American people. It let down local health departments and So there must be a sense of, well, they have to pay a price for that error. Hmm. On the other hand, why was the the job of coming up with a test enough to test millions and millions of people put on a tiny laboratory inside the CDC that was understaffed and, you know, not designed for commercial production? The other possibility is that what scientists at the CDC would be saying right now would run contrary to Mike Pence and... And Donald Trump saying, we'll be open by Memorial Day. 
I mean, it, punishing the CDC is punishing the American people. I mean, that, that's the thing. I mean, those guys, oh. my kids go on that website to, to look at, uh, you know, these guidelines and things like that about schools and summer camps. It is really important information, Anderson, that, you know, worry that people aren't getting. Yeah. Can, well, can you, you know, Lord, uh, yeah, go ahead, Lori. Oh, I would just say it goes beyond the loss of the information to the American public, to your kids, Sanjay. It goes to every state department. <laughs> Every city health department, every county health right. department is relies on the CDC to send out the guidances to help them figure out what they should do. I mean, very few local health departments are substantially enough funded and have a deep enough bench to be able to analyze a brand new microbe that's never been seen on planet Earth before and figure out what's the best way to respond to it, how what information they should give their mayor or their city council or their governor, and what kind of guidance is appropriate to take the public through it. And to, to not have the information coming down from the well-respected CDC at the top is depriving every <coughs> single locality of a kind of database and <coughs> wisdom that they absolutely depend upon. In terms of testing, I know you, you know, the numbers there's there's numbers all over the place of people what people think are needed to be testing you said that testing needs to be smart targeted can you lay out what you think an effective testing strategy looks like in in your mind yeah because we rarely have a good diagnostic in any outbreak in fact if i have one complaint about every single outbreak is that diagnostics get put at the bottom of the list and with diagnostics you have two key things you're trying to figure out one is this person infected and in need of medical care and isolation? And two, what's going on with this epidemic? What is it? How big is it? Who's giving it to whom? How do I, it, where, the, where should be the points of intervention? And again, especially now when we are in a time of economic depression and every single jurisdiction has limited resources to address the problem with, and the federal government is not doling out cash to every single health department across America. So what you need is a kind of testing that is designed to answer appropriate policy questions. For example, if I were the governor of Indiana right now or Nebraska, I, it would be very, very important for me to know what percentage of all transmissions in my state are a result of the meatpacking industries in my state and what is the primary way that the virus is spreading within those settings. How can I maintain the economy that is the meat industry of those two states while at the same time minimizing how many human beings in the general population and in the worker population get infected? So I would want the health department to do some very targeted studies that answer questions like, one, how many of the employees are infected? And I want independent data, not company data, because I need to make choices for the whole population. Two, I'd want to know how many of those workers' families have become infected. Hmm. Let's do some snapshot studies of the families. And three, how has it generalized beyond there? Are there parts of the community we can look at to, to determine larger spread? And I think one of the things that people misunderstand the most about testing when the mantra goes out, we want testing, 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 is 
how, how do you actually do that testing? There's this sort of vague imagination that employers will have hundreds and hundreds of test kits and every single time a worker comes to the job, somebody will test them and they'll have the results. This is a total fantasy. We will never have such a thing, not unless somebody invents a test that's as quick and cheap as a litmus test is for testing acidity. And we don't have that. So it's going to have to require that employers come up with smart ways to figure out how do I take a kind of targeted census that gives me a snapshot view on a daily or weekly basis of what's going on in my workforce. And how can I, if I run a school, do the same thing? Or if I want to know if it's safe to reopen a university? Yeah. Uh, Lord Garrett, it's sobering to talk to you, but it's essential information. And uh, I, I, I so believe in just being armed with facts and truth and in a time like this and not happy talk. And I appreciate you, uh, your, your candor. Thank you very much, Lord Garrett. Sanjay, we're going to take a quick break. When we return, former Vice President Al Gore joins us to continue this conversation about the government's response to the pandemic so far and the qualities it takes to be an effective leader in a time of crisis. After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. This is CNN's Global Town Hall. Before the break, we were talking about re- the reopening of the country, despite the d- death count in this country still increasing. I'm De- sorry, the daily death count in this country rose again by more than 100 in just the last hour. It's now uh, 2,218, and the virus obviously is still spreading in large parts of the country. So we want to continue that part of the conversation now with former Vice President Al Gore. Welcome, Mr. Vice President. Thank you very much. Good to be with you. Thanks so much for being here. I was watching a talk that you gave a couple years ago about leadership. You talked about vision, values, and goals is is how you describe leadership. And I'm just wondering, when you look at at the president's handling of this pandemic, the federal government response, I mean, is it clear what the vision, the values, and the goals are? No, uh, but first of all, uh, Anderson, may I join the many who have said to you, congratulations on your son. I was watching uh, a week ago and uh, I I was filled with memories of pure joy when I became a father uh, and I've become a father several times. But, you know, it can be a transformative experience for men. And uh, I just smiled and smiled thinking of all the joy in your heart. So congratulations. Now, let me go on to your question. Not much joy in answering uh, your question because, um, you know, I I tried to navigate away from the partisan dimension of this. We're in an election year and I'm in a different political party than the president. And so, you know, you can take what I say with that as the background. But really, what's at stake here is so much more important than that. And honestly, um, he has he has failed as as president uh, particularly on this challenge the warnings were ignored uh i spent eight years uh, starting every single day with a, a lengthy report from the intelligence committee and there were a very few occasions where there was a stark warning about grave danger to the country and whenever there was such an occasion we stopped and said hold the show here we got get the fbi get the cia get whoever was involved over we we need to learn about this 
Then, um, after the warnings were missed, he has failed to, to mobilize the resources of the federal government to straighten out this testing catastrophe, to, to get the swabs and the so-called reagents they need to do the tests and the gowns and masks and all of the other stuff. He has not done that. And, and now, I think we're in grave danger, I have to tell you both. I think that we are seeing the start of a botched reopening. I think that the president appears to be engaging in magical thinking again. And what I mean by that is, uh, you know, a couple months ago he said, one day it's just going to magically disappear. It, it, it seems as if he may be recklessly rolling the dice uh, hoping that he can goose the economy just enough in the third quarter of this year to enhance his reelection prospects, hoping that he can divert the blame for the extra tens of thousands of Americans who the doctors tell us will die as a result of this and blame it on the Chinese or former President Obama or whoever. Uh, in, instead of doing what a president needs to do, first of all, be a watchman on the tower looking for danger, then responding to it, mobilizing the government, reaching out not just to your political base, but to all Americans, empathizing, showing some empathy because people are grieving and suffering. Uh, and, and then when there is a problem that can only be resolved with the leadership of the President of the United States, he needs to take a hold of that. But he, instead he said, literally, I take no responsibility. It is unfathomable to me, and I'm sorry to get uh, wound up about this, but I see what he's doing, and it is com the complete opposite of what the United States of America needs in the presidency right now. Uh, let, me, let me ask you the, sort of a similar thing, but a slightly different angle, Mr. Vice President. Just from a style standpoint, when you when you were even vice president, you're dealing with a situation where you have limited information, or the information is evolving, continuing to change, and but you got to make decisions. You have to do things. Right. How do you approach? How do you approach that? Well, first of all, you you uh, nail down what you can know for sure. Uh, and there are still some remaining uncertainties about this virus, absolutely, it's so new and uh, I've been listening to you all, it's fascinating and everybody's, you know, focused on this, but there's a, lo there's a lot that we do know. It is extremely contagious. Mm. Uh, we have human-to-human -human transmission. There is a kind of airborne transmission. I know that's a term of art in medicine, but uh, it, there's a kind of airborne transmission. Uh, and the gold standard for predicting what's going to happen in the weeks ahead and what result will we get from the social distancing and the other measures of testing and contact tracing, the gold standard has been this University of Washington model. Uh, and the White House officials have shown it multiple times in their daily briefings. And what they did, as you, you guys know, is they, they plugged in the premature reopening by so many states that are nowhere close to meeting the, the White House guidelines. They have hidden the CDC guidelines. Uh, but when, when the University of Washington made these adjustments, they said within a month, we're gonna see 3,000 deaths per day, 200,000 new infections each day. That's a 9-11 every single day. 
Uh, and ignoring that, thinking that somehow magically that's not going to happen, this is a botched reopening. And it is not even going to serve the purposes that the president wants it to serve to, to help the economy because people are not going to be going out the way he would like them to uh, if they're afraid because the doctors tell them it's not safe. You know, it was being reported today that the White House was rejecting the CDC's detailed guidelines uh, for or suggestions also for reopening the country. Dr. Birch has told us they're not rejecting them. They're just editing them. So we'll see what actually you know, ends up out, out of those edits. But when you see all the information is now being filtered through the vice president's office, through the coronavirus task force, you know, the scientists, they're not liberated to speak, uh, you know, anywhere they want. That's all controlled by, by the White House. When you see how the White House has set this up, does it make sense from a scientific standpoint, from educating the American people and informing the American people on best science practices, to have it all filtered through the, the White House and, and the coronavirus task force briefings essentially being the only place that, that you know, the, the scientists actually speak from, from a podium? No, it makes no sense at all. My faith tradition has the famous teaching, you shall know the truth and the truth shall set you free. Uh, and we have had a tr tradition in this country uh, of seeking out the best available evidence and testing it with one another in free discourse and, and then deciding together in a spirit of comedy what's more likely to, to be true than not. That's how science works as well. Now, Tony Fauci, I worked with Dr. Fauci. Everybody knows what a, a great scientist he is. For the White House to prevent him from testifying to the House of Representatives on hearings uh, that the American people want to, to, to see delve into the answers to the questions they have, that's horrible. When, when he fire, or, uh, uh, removes from his position the doctor who is in charge of the search for a vaccine, because uh, uh, allegedly because he wouldn't bend to President Trump's will and uh, approve the wide uh, promotion of this uh, snake oil uh, type medicine that, that he was promoting, uh, I, this is this is nuts. Uh, and, and to take your medical advice from a, a right wing talk show host who brings some uh, uh, some questionable medical advice into the Oval Office instead of listening to the Centers for Disease Control. And, and as was said earlier, where is the Centers for Disease Control? Uh, they're the ones that should be having these daily briefings. Where is the FDA? Why, why, were they bullied into opening the floodgates and letting all of these crummy tests out there that we now know most of them don't work? This is a disgrace. The entire handling of this matter has been an utter and complete disgrace. Let me, if I can for a second, Mr. Vice President, talk about the private sector. You've spent a, a, a significant part of your career also looking at the world of technology. I think last time I saw you was in Silicon Valley. You know, we can do supercomputers, we can 3D print ventilators. You know, I, I think it's been surprising that something as simple as, as tests and, and partly in as simple as swabs, you know, we, we couldn't get right. Granted, we started late. We should have started early. I think everybody concedes that point. But what, where is American ingenuity here? Is, is it rising enough, do you think, to the occasion? Well, I, I think that we are 
more likely than not to see some therapeutics uh, uh, coming within the next few months that I'm hopeful uh, will be uh, effective. Uh, and you would know far better than me, Sanjay, about the prospects for a vaccine, but the new genetic techniques that are being used to speed up that process, we may see the biotechnology community yet rise to this challenge in a very impressive way. But these tests, as you say, the CDC messed up uh, the first uh, test. Uh, some of the swabs and reagents uh, are uh, material that we now rely on foreign countries to uh, provide. Uh, and the president has not been willing to use the powers of his office, including those in the Defense Production Act, to mandate this. He's willing to do it for stakes, but not for protective gear for the health workers or for the tests or, or for the swabs or the reagents. That, that is uh, uh, upside down priorities. Yeah, Mr. Vice President, uh, we appreciate your time tonight. Thank, Thank you. you for being with us. Thank you for having me. Take care. So we'll be right back. <laughs> After the break, more from CNN town halls and debates. Stay tuned. Uh, we want to thank Dr. Burks, Dr. Wynn, Lori Garrett, Vice President Gore for being on the, the broadcast tonight. Sandra, we'll be back, I think, next week with another town hall. We'll Number see. Number 11, yes. <laughs> Good night. And that concludes this episode of CNN Town Halls and Debates, your direct source to the people shaping your world. To make sure you're always a part of the conversation, subscribe on Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, or your favorite podcast app. For even more updates, follow us on Twitter at CNN Podcasts. When you work, you work next level. And when you play, you play next level. And when it's time to sleep, Sleep Number Smart Beds are designed to embrace your uniqueness, providing you with high-quality sleep every night. Sleep next level. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, the Queen Sleep Number C4 Smart Bed is only $1,599. Save $300 for a limited time, only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Prices higher in Alaska and Hawaii. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So, you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.